Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. Today, I'm so happy to say we are joined by senior legal affairs reporter for Politico, Kyle Cheney. He focuses on January 6th and the aftermath. He's covered Congress and presidential elections. His reporting has just been absolutely indispensable when it comes to January 6th, Steve Bannon, basically all of the big legal stories. And so, Kyle, thank you so much for coming back, being a repeat player and passing judgment with us. Of course, Jessica. Thank, that's very kind of you to say. I'm always happy to join you. So let's start with the January 6th hearings, and then let's move on to Steve Bannon. I feel so lucky because you were in the hearing room for, I think, six of the seven hearings, and you were in the courtroom, you said, for all but the very last moments of the Bannon trial. So I want you to do what so few people can do, which is bring our listeners into those rooms. And so, as I said, let's start with January 6th. Mm -hmm. You were in the hearing room. I'm just wondering if we can start very broad with, based on your reporting, based on your sense of what happened in the room, have the hearings started to make a difference? You know, I, it's not a very satisfying answer. I think the answer is we just don't fully know yet. I think that, you know, especially the most recent hearing is still kind of sinking in. There's a lot of fallout from these hearings. You know, we're, you know, the committee, you know, says the impact for them has been that witnesses are starting to just trip over themselves to, to get there and tell them more information about some of the things that have come out in the public hearings. I think there's nothing like public exposure to motivate people who say, well, I want to give my two cents now to come forward. Whether that's taking hold in the public at large is a complicated question. I think there's clearly some fatigue around Donald Trump we're seeing inside the Republican Party. And I think the, the hearings are a piece of that. Uh, maybe not everything, but you're seeing the rise of some other figures within the party, people like Ron DeSantis, who are trying to compete for that share of the the MAGA base. And I, I think there's you know some genuine sense that that Trump's hold on the party has slipped at least a little, um, and it may be why we're hearing him talk about launching his run for president again sooner than later to try to prevent any more of that hemorrhaging. Um, but, but, you know, I think that the hearings, you know, they, they clearly get to Donald Trump, they get under his skin, he goes on a, on a rampage every time they, they present new evidence. And I think that's a result that they would want as well. They want to show that they're getting to him, causing him to react, that he can't just ignore them and pretend that they're not showing legitimate and important information about what he did before and on January 6th. Well, and one of the things that I think is so worth emphasizing is that we're hearing from people largely who wanted the president to win, who worked for him, who are lifelong Republicans, and who are now under oath. And I think that's something that it can't be dismissed as a partisan witch hunt when you have people who seemingly to the last moment were working to have Trump reelected and were hoping to work for him for another four years. And I wanted to follow up on something you said, which is also my sense that the committee actually thought the hearings would end now. I think the original reporting was that Benny Thompson said the end of spring, obviously it's the middle of summer now, but the dam has broken. And I think that Liz Cheney said that, that more people are coming forward. I had the sense that maybe it was when Cassidy Hutchinson testified under oath that she allowed other people not to be the historic first. And so in general, I'm wondering, do you have a sense of 
What's the new evidence that's coming forward? I want to ask you specifically about some people who testified before the grand jury, but what are the threads that they're now getting evidence about and following up on? Well, I think the biggest movement was to get Pat Cipollo and the former White House counsel uh, into an interview uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And, and that interview, which followed Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony uh, in the committee's view, corroborated a lot of her most damning argument or evidence that she provided, uh, things about the legal concerns inside the White House, about a march to the Capitol, uh, you know, about, you know, again, Cipollone raising legal objections throughout this time period about things like sending false electors to Washington, trying to overturn the election on January 6th. I mean, so he's now giving them direct testimony about the, about that stuff. And I think that that in turn has caused the committee to revisit some earlier interviews to potentially call in other witnesses to respond to some of the new information they've gotten from Cipollone. I think the other big one is related to the Secret Service. Uh, you know, we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson some really explosive stories about things that were potentially happening within Trump's Secret Service detail. You know, we know about things going on with Pence's Secret Service detail at the Capitol. And uh, because of some of that testimony, the committee's gone directly to the Secret Service and asked for information from them. And it turns out a lot of that information is missing, um, or at least potentially key information is missing from some really high level Secret Service officials who have knowledge about what happened in that time frame. And so the committee is extremely concerned about this. They've subpoenaed the, the agency through its outgoing director, James Murray. And I think that's an avenue of inquiry that's just beginning for them. So let's pick up on this Secret Service text issue. You just mentioned the Secret Service what specifically, I know that obviously they would have information based on what happened that day, but mm -hmm. maybe for some of our listeners who haven't been following moment by moment, what's the puzzle piece that they're hoping the Secret Service can try and fill? And can you remind us about these missing texts? I think mm -hmm. for a lot of people who have jobs, personal email accounts, they understand that they need a backup. So this all mm -hmm. seems very surprising. Right. Well, and for the Secret Service, I mean, they're they're the the leading experts on, you know, cybersecurity and, and, and matters like that. So not just sort of a normal cyber hygiene, you know, backing things up. These are the people who specialize in it. Um, so the fact that they would have text messages go missing from what we understand is two dozen officials, they haven't identified all of those people, but some reports say it's, you know, the very highest levels of the agency, including people in Donald Trump's detail. And for those to go missing and for the specific time frame that includes January 6th just raises all kinds of alarms. And I think, you know, it's not just we want all the communications from that period, which the committee does, but I think it's that we know that some of the chatter among agents might be extremely relevant. So there's questions about, you know, did Donald Trump try to have the Secret Service remove the magnetometers from his rally so he could bring his armed supporters closer to the stage? Uh, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson testified to that. Did, you know, what were the warnings going on within the Secret Service in the moment as Trump is telling his supporters, let's go to the Capitol? And then, of course, Cassidy Hutchinson told a, a sort of third-hand story where Tony Ornato, another White House official who was a Secret Service detailee, said that there was a physical altercation between Trump and his the head of his detail, Robert Engel, in the presidential motorcade in his SUV. Again, that's explosive and it's you know again third hand but there's been other corroborating evidence about 
this ex, you know intense exchange that Trump had with his detail in the vehicle that I think speaks to his state of mind and, and is something the committee would want direct evidence of that might be included in things like these texts. And on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue, you have Pence being ushered to safety by his Secret Service detail, refusing to get into his car to leave the Capitol. Um, and, and, you know, what is the discussion among them and what are they relaying back to the White House and the Trump side of the, the equation? Um, so I think it's important for them to see all that interplay, too. Well, in as of right now, nobody has gone under oath to undermine anything that Cassie Hutchinson has said about the Secret Service. Is that right? I know there was initial reporting, well, Secret Service agents are going to come forward and say that some of this isn't true. But right now, under oath, nobody has undermined any of her testimony about the Secret Service and otherwise. Is that right? It is. And that's the thing is you saw a few attempts to poke, poke holes in her story, uh, mostly anonymous and kind of around the edges of whether uh, of things that mattered, but it created this perception that maybe some of her testimony was unraveling in those first hours after she testified. But it's now been a month and no one has, uh, certainly not in an under oath or public way, contradicted her. And, and in fact, if anything, more evidence has come out to corroborate a lot of what she discussed. And so I think that the committee feels pretty good about what they got from her, you know, and then feel even better about it the further we get from it without any of this under oath, you know, uh, contradiction. And in fact, maybe there won't be any under oath contradiction, uh, given that no one is even attempting to contradict her in a non sworn way. Right. And that's the, this is just a pet peeve from my perspective, which is we treat, not you, but we tend to treat statements under oath and not as, being entitled to the same weight. And of course they're not. And there's so much information from my perspective that we're hearing again from people who work for president Trump, who now only because they had to comply with a subpoena mm -hmm. are providing us with still surprising information, even though we all saw this play out before our eyes. And I'm not asking obviously for you to weigh in on an opinion there. I do think you mentioned vice president Pence and I want to talk about some other news this week, which is that you and others have reported that Mark Short, Vice President Pence's chief of staff, testified just recently to a grand jury that's obviously investigating matters related to January 6th. I know it because you're so in this, it probably feels like an obvious question, but why does hearing from the vice president's chief of staff matter? What do we mm -hmm. expect that he can continue to tell us or what new information or what corroborating information do we expect to hear from him? Sure. Well, well, the setting it's for it to be in a grand jury setting is particularly significant because there's always been this question about, you know, look, the committee's been at least publicly out front on a lot of these matters and is DOJ going to show the same kind of interest in, in pursuing these? Well, we, we've seen a lot of evidence to suggest DOJ's investigation is sort of uh, advancing rapidly and may have been, you know, more advanced than people gave it credit for, you know, weeks or months earlier. Uh, I think what Mark Short gives the Justice Department, at least to our knowledge, its first testimony from someone who was in the White House in those weeks before January 6th, pushing back against what Donald Trump was trying to get Mike Pence to do to single-handedly overturn the election. He was in the meetings. He was advising Pence. He was, you know, there with can give firsthand accounts of 
things that Donald Trump was saying or doing, depending on you know where privileges privilege issues may or may not come into play. Um, and you know, we know he already talked to the January sixth committee, but now if he tells them, if he tells DOJ what he told the committee, um, that could be a lot of important state of mind evidence about how this false electors plan came together. Uh, and it's not just short. Uh, Greg Jacob, Pence's chief legal counsel, also testified to the grand jury sometime in recent days or weeks as well. Uh, and, and I think the two of them can be a really powerful uh, firsthand uh, set of witnesses for the Justice Department. And I, I want to get to the Justice Department in a minute, but I think that you tweeted something earlier about Greg Jacob, as you said, the Pence's chief legal counsel that he was probably the most significant figure in the vice president's orbit to help him resist this pressure campaign regarding the fake electors by Trump and John Eastman. And so I think that is also, it's going to be obviously so significant to hear about President Trump's state of mind, what he heard, what he decided to try and push regardless, and how the vice president's office was really I think trying to push back against that because he had very little constitutional discretion. I mean, the day that you certify the electoral college votes, it's truly a rubber stamp day. It's you right. count up votes and you say, I'm the vice president. I see that you counted. Thank you. Um, well, and and that, that's, that's right. And I think, I think there's, there's a very narrow scenario where January 6th becomes a less ministerial rubber stamp kind of format. And that's if you had, a state legislature or some other power in a, within a state certify a competing slate of electors. That's not what happened on January 6th. You had random pro-Trump activists and party leaders get together and say, well, here's our alternate slate. But no one ever certified those electors and had a certified slate by a legislature landed in Mike Pence's lap on January 6th, they might have had a much trickier time explaining why they couldn't count that alternate slate. But but we're not, we're not even in that realm because whatever arrived to Mike Pence was the state certified slate that all 50 state governors had given to, you know, sent to Washington. And these random collection of, of essentially people with no authority saying, well, you should, you should consider our slate as an equal slate to the one that the governor certified. And there was no universe in which Mike Pence could look at those. Uh, that's what Trump had spent you know, weeks trying to, to pursue uh, because state legislators just did not give in to his requests either. Kyle, I'm so happy you brought this up because it actually leads into what I think is the biggest Supreme Court case of next term, mm -hmm. which is this issue of the independent state legislature doctrine. We'll talk about it more in another episode, but what you're pointing out is it did not happen that there was some question about which slate of electors do we certify, which is the proper slate of electors, who has the power to, in fact, say, this is our slate. None of that happened. None of the things leading up to January 6th, right. as you point out, fell apart to put Mike Pence in a difficult situation. In fact, he was in a situation where he had basically no options unless he wanted to go outside of the constitution. And I think that if there's a crime here, and that's what DOJ is clearly pursuing, um, it's not necessarily these individual false electors, or they all signed, or at least many of them signed documents claiming to be the true electors. And there may be some, some culpability there, but I think at least I'm persuaded that historically 
there's actually been these contingencies where people sign documents claiming to be just in case a court or a state legislature were to say, yeah, you know what, you are actually, Donald Trump was actually the winner. You, your, your electors votes should count. Where I think the crime could be, based on what we know so far, is that once it became clear that state legislatures were not going to do this, that this was not going to happen, and you had people involved in this plan, John Eastman and Trump himself, who knew that you needed a, some kind of imprimatur from a state legislature or state authority, yet on January 6th, they still tried to browbeat Pence into doing this, knowing that there was no legal path for Pence to do it. And that's where you get into, uh, you know, these higher level potential crimes here. So I think you segued us into the question that so many people are asking, which is what's going on with the Department of Justice. And you mentioned that it looks like maybe they're doing more than we thought maybe months or weeks ago. Could we start with this memo that Attorney General Merrick Garland put out, I think it was earlier this week or mm-hmm. last week, it's basically the same memo as far as I can see that every attorney general puts mm-hmm. out saying, we try not to interfere with big political questions. Could you talk to us just briefly about what was in that memo and why did we talk about it? I mean, is it yeah. just the same memo that every attorney general puts out and we shouldn't read anything into it? Or does it indicate, oh, this attorney general is not going to press charges against Trump or anyone in his inner circle? No, my, my read of it was the same as yours. This is actually a fairly standard uh, policy directive. And it was it was actually issued in May, but it, it started, it was reported on uh, in the last couple of weeks as as some major development. Uh, I think people may have been, you know, on the left in particular, were upset that Garland adopted Bill Barr's standard in which he had escalated. Sort of, he said it election related or politically sensitive investigations should be elevated to the higher levels within the Justice Department before they're opened or before they make reach certain milestones. Um, and, and so I think people look at that and they see Barr's name and say, oh, well, he must be doing something. He must be embracing a policy that wasn't good because it came out during the Barr era. But I think on the whole, it's a fairly standard thing. And I think a lot of people overread it to say, oh, this is somehow connected to Donald Trump and maybe going to going to limit what the department can do regarding Donald Trump, especially if he announces his presidential candidacy soon. And and the read we're getting from DOJ is, you know, Garland himself said that there's nothing in here that you can really construe as tying our hands regarding Donald Trump, who even if he does run, his election would be more than two years from now. So, you know, I think everyone is very sensitive about these things, but it may not be the, the bombshell that it was made to be. I was very confused by that, frankly, because it seemed like the same thing that's always issued and people just read into it in a, well, I guess somewhat predictable way given our current climate, but also in a way that um, seemed way beyond the implications of the memo. And that probably brings us to, you just said, you know, there really is no bar, I think, to potentially trying the former president or people in his inner circle. What potential crimes are we looking at? I do think it's important for people to focus on this isn't about did the president do something you didn't agree with or you thought was immoral or unethical. This is is there a portion of the federal criminal code that a federal prosecutor can point to and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that crime actually mm-hmm. occurred? So I know people have talked about obstruction of a congressional proceeding, defrauding mm-hmm. the government, mm-hmm. uh, potentially things like seditious conspiracy. What's your reporting indicating in terms of specific crimes? 
I mean, it's really hard to know. You, you described the probably the two most probable, um, if only because we have a federal judge who's laid out a framework for it already. That's Judge Carter in California, who, when deciding whether some of the, the emails the January 6th committee wanted would be made available to them, uh, he said, you know, there were due to many reasons, but you know, including evidence of a potential crime. Uh, the committee should get access to some of these emails. These are emails from John Eastman, Trump, Trump's lawyer at the time. Uh, and what the judge said was, the committee's presented evidence that a likely criminal conspiracy occurred. And that's a cr- criminal conspiracy to obstruct Congress on January 6th, as you pointed out, uh, and a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States by pushing some of these false claims about about the outcome of the election. And then and the seditious conspiracy, obviously, that's the gravest... Tr- charge anyone's talking about. And I don't think that was being talked about seriously until Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. Yeah. You know, and it's still, I think, look, to charge a former president with any of this for things he did while he was in office would be both a nationally traumatic and would be extremely complicated to bring before, to even find a jury who could sit on a case like that. But I think, um, you know, there's also the converse of that, which is if you have the evidence, do you, you, how can you not uh, bring the charge, but it's, it's we're a long way off and an extremely difficult and, and, and very wrenching kind of process if we, if it ever gets there. Well, and I think you've just described exactly how I feel. And I know that you as a reporter, it's not your role to share opinion, but my view is in a sense, how can you possibly charge the former president? And then in the other sense, how can given the evidence you not charge this mm-hmm. person? And I keep coming back to the idea after we've now had seven hearings that given all of the evidence that we've heard publicly, I, again, just in my view, I almost feel like the, we would be owed an explanation if there aren't charges that are brought. Having said that, it's hard to fathom that the DOJ would bring the charges. And I know I'm saying two things that are exact opposites, but I know all the listeners are going to be wondering, and mm-hmm. uh, so I'll ask, do you have a sense? I know you said it's far off. It would be wrenching. Do you have a sense of where the Department of Justice is going, either with respect to the former president or members of his inner circle? Are we going to see federal criminal charges? I mean, th- there's, you know, all I have to go off of is sort of the, the tea leaves from what we know, the informed report, you know, speculation, essentially, which is that they're, they're pretty high up in the White House. If they're talking to, to Mark Short and Greg Jacob, they, they, they this is, these are not low level players in all of this. Uh, you know, and, and there's probably a lot of activity we don't know. I mean, they've charged, they're not charged, excuse me, subpoenaed several state party, state Republican party chairs, which is, you know, a fairly brazen thing to do unless you have, you know, you know, genuine evidence of, of the, the role these people played. Um, and they've moved their way up to, to, to sort of mid-level in the Trump campaign, uh, some figures there too. So, so you know, we're seeing this move very quickly and, and escalate very rapidly. Uh, and, and so I think that there is, you know, clearly they're, they're working in a very concerted direction. Uh, where, where that leads ultimately is, is hard to say. Um, I think Garland has made a point of saying, no, you know, emphasizing no one's above the law. He's made a point of emphasizing nothing on our in our policy that the department would stop us from investigating a former president. Um, and so I, I think that they're trying to make clear that as, as clear as they can during an ongoing investigation that 
Trump is not out of the out of the woods. And you know, you mentioned fed, you know federal charges, but there's also what's going on in Fulton County in Georgia, which is also clearly escalating very rapidly and pulling in a lot of the same figures. Uh, so there's you know on two fronts, I think Donald Trump is facing legal exposure. Before we get to Georgia, which I did want to ask you about, could we stay in the January 6th hearing for one mm-hmm. second? I just want to ask, and I'm not sure even how to phrase this, what are some moments where you were actually in the room and it felt the most historic, the most significant for you, where you thought, this is an experience that I need to try and bring to the people who follow my mm-hmm. reporting, but how do I convey what just happened. Again, so few of us will actually be in that room ever. I'm just wondering what was the big takeaway from not following this on TV, but actually being there experiencing it. I missed probably the biggest one, which was Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony because I had COVID. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, by all accounts, that was clearly the most historic of the group. I, I was at all the others, but they, they also felt similarly uh, significant. And I think it was more the fact that you knew you had millions of eyeballs on each of these things. A lot of it was information we had known, supplemented by some new revelations, important text messages, things like, you know, members of Congress seeking presidential pardons. Like that was new information that came out at the hearing. Some of the conversations among Trump's aides that they were having privately, but you know, were captured in text messages that the committee has where they talked in the you know, unguarded ways about, you know, Donald Trump, you know, not really caring about the police when, you know, when they were in the way of him getting, you know, overturning the election, things like that, that were really remarkable. They may not be as legally salient, but those were the kind of things that, you know, got gasps in the hearing room uh, that, you know, and, and you're doing it, you're sitting next to members of the Capitol Police and the, and the Metropolitan Police Department who were attacked or harmed or, or part of the response that day. You have members of Congress who we're fleeing the mob in the crowd. So it's just the atmosphere in there is, is very somber. It's very um, humbling to be in the middle of all that. But also in terms of the information that comes out, I think the presentation was effective for people watching at home to really get the gravity of it all. Last question about the presentation being effective. From my perspective, again, just my opinion, Liz Cheney, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who seems to be about to lose her seat in Wyoming, has been incredibly effective and efficient at laying out the facts in this kind of no-nonsense tone, and sometimes in a way where the substance actually undermines the style in the sense that the style is so straightforward and matter of fact. And then she says something like, oh, and just one more thing, there's been witness tampering. And I, I'm wondering if in the room, how does her presentation play? I know that for some of the other members, they raise their voices. It's a little more theatrical. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more of a performance. For her, it just seems so consistently measured. And here she is saying, I'm putting Constitution above my career. She's about to lose her seat. I think there's no question about that. Is there a shift in mood when she speaks in the hearing room? 
Absolutely. I think that's a very good point. I think I would describe her as more almost prosecutorial in a sense yeah. um, in how she delivers things. And, and I think that's been true, not just at the hearings, but throughout. I mean, she has been the leading edge of people raising the prospect of criminality by Trump using legal terms to describe his actions um, and will, like willfulness and, and things like that. That would be elements of a crime. And so she's driven that point throughout the process uh, but she's also in the hearings made those arguments most effectively, um, like it's partly because of how flatly she delivered it, but clearly. And I think that's by design. I think they view her as their best messenger because she's a lifelong Republican, because they do disagree with her on 99% of issues, except this one. And she can speak to Republicans in a way, even though you're right, she's probably going to lose her primary. She's not really, a, you know, you can't really say she represents the mainstream of the Republican Party anymore, essentially, because that mainstream is now fairly uh, in thrall of, of Donald Trump. But, but uh, she does speak to Republicans in a different way than Jamie Raskin or Adam Schiff can, uh, or even Benny Thompson. And, and uh, so I think her messaging has always been, they, they want to turn to her to deliver the most important and the most, uh, you know, jaw dropping kind of evidence uh, because they know it comes across differently from her. I think it's so interesting that you accurately say, you know, she's no longer the mainstream of the party. And there are so many people I think who are Democrats, independents, Republicans who don't support Trump, who are just dying to have a political argument, an ideological argument with Liz Cheney about healthcare or in the environment or immigration. And we're just not there as a country. I think that just speaks to what a different party, again, in my opinion, this is that there are a lot of Democrats now supporting, at least in some form, Liz Cheney, because she has mm -hmm. said things that they want to hear, which is, this is worth losing my seat over. This is more important than my political career. And just to add, just to close on that point, too, is, is I think that the committee throughout these public hearings, has, their, their most important dis tactical decision was to let Republicans do as much of the talking as possible. You mentioned the voices that we're hearing a lot of during the public hearings are people who wanted Donald Trump to win. They were, and, and most of them have say that out loud at some point or another during their testimony, uh, but could not could not do it given the reality of the, the outcome. And so to have Liz Cheney be the person on the committee side delivering a lot of the most salient and important information, and then to have all the witnesses be Republicans too, it helps the committee say, look, this is not a partisan exercise. You have a lifelong, you know, rock rib kind of, you know, conservative uh, Congresswoman leading the hearings, and you have Republican, tr you know, Trumpian Republicans in some cases uh, testifying and, and providing the most damning pieces of evidence. I could talk to you about the January 6th hearings and what it's like to be in the room for hours longer, but I know that we don't have that time. And I did want to pick up on the thread that I promised listeners we would, which is there's news out of Georgia. Obviously, there's a criminal investigation in Georgia regarding President Trump's, former President Trump's pressure campaign, where he basically called the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, and said, find me, I think it was about 12,000 more votes. And I know there's been some news regarding that investigation. I think for listeners, maybe they didn't follow it or the news was a little bit confusing. Could you just update us on what happened in the Georgia investigation this week? Yeah, so the Fulton County investigation seems to be going maybe faster than the Justice Department one has lately. And what we're seeing now is a sudden rush of grand jury subpoenas from Fulton County for people 
uh, like Senator Lindsey Graham, for uh, some of the same people DOJ is looking at, like John Eastman, who was Trump's lawyer during a lot of the strategizing about how to overturn the election. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is part of that. So those subpoenas have come out in the last couple of weeks. What we saw in the last week was, you know, uh, a number, I think, actually, in fact, all 16 Republicans who served as these false electors for Trump were told they were now criminal targets of her investigation. Uh, and this led to a big backlash from them. They're trying to get her disqualified to even oversee the case because they think it's all political, uh, or they at least they argue that in court. And in fact, a judge agreed that in one specific case, uh, the case of Senator Burt Jones, who's running for lieutenant governor, the prosecutor did overstep because she uh, held a fundraiser for his opponent, that that just was too compromising. So in, in his specific case, she has to pass off her responsibility to some other prosecuting office. But for the rest of the investigation, she's still in charge and that investigation seems to be going full speed. And I'll just point out for the listeners, we'll probably talk about this more because it's going to be very difficult for this prosecutor to basically wall herself off from some portions of the investigation, but not others. And Kyle, before we let you go, I did want to ask about the Steve Bannon trial because you were in the room as we Mm -hmm. talked about until the moment of the verdict. I know you had to go. And of course, our listeners remember that Steve Bannon was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. He refused to comply. He refused to even come and say, I'm asserting an executive privilege, which I think would have been a bogus assertion. He at kind Mm -hmm. of the absolute midnight hour right before trial said, oh, well, maybe I'll come in and testify Uh, That never came to fruition. I always thought that was just him trying to give himself some argument at trial. His attorney famously said in open court right before the trial began, like, well, we really don't have a defense. And that, in fact, was true. He put on no defense. He's not legally required to, but he didn't. He put on no witnesses. And in a very quick trial, just a few days, he was found guilty on two counts for contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with those subpoenas. And I think we basically know how this might affect the work of the committee. They're not going to hear from him. Maybe they will hear from other people who will at least kind of be willing to play and comply with at least part of the subpoena. But I'm wondering, just in the courtroom, what were your big takeaways from sitting there watching the prosecutors make their argument for why Steve Bannon was guilty of contempt of Congress? And what did you observe from watching Steve Bannon? I mean, look, you know, Bannon's lawyers will say they were hamstrung because the judge didn't allow them to make the arguments they wanted to, that, that Bannon was somehow advised by his attorney to refuse to comply with the subpoena and that that you know because these were there were complicated issues of privilege involved so he just deferred his attorney. the judge said not, none of that applies here because you know there's a, there's a long-standing precedent in dc in the dc circuit that if you deliberately refuse to comply with a subpoena from congress you are guilty of contempt. The ra- reasoning doesn't really matter. Unless you, you know, got stuck in traffic and missed it by accident or you forgot the date or you whatever it was, that's the only excuse that would sort of have flown if Bannon had evidence of that and he did not. Um, and so the jury, I think, did, it didn't take a lot. But the, the, the real thing that st- stood out during the trial was just how flailing the Bannon defense was. I mean, they were talking about the prosecutor having being in a book club with one of the witnesses and that somehow created a potential conflict uh they you know they were talking about 
uh, politics, which the judge had to several times admonish them to stop doing. They tried to inject you know, political calculation into the decision to subpoena him in the first place, even though there was not really evidence of that. And so it was really all over the map how they tried to defend him when they couldn't raise those other issues and the jury just didn't buy it. I think prosecutors had a much easier time explaining why his actions were contemptuous of Congress and keeping the trial pretty quick. It did seem, I think, for a lot of people, like there was this very long lead up and then the trial began and ended within one week. And we're very grateful that you were able to provide some insights of what it was actually like inside the courtroom. I want to remind all of our listeners that you can find Kyle Cheney, senior legal affairs reporter for Politico on Twitter at Kyle D. Cheney. That's C-H-E-N-E-Y. I follow him. I suggest that all of you do as well. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, sometimes TikTok, at Levinson Jessica. Please continue to rate, review, subscribe. We love hearing from our listeners, and we wish everybody a great day. Thank you.